So delighted to be in chapel today and honored uh, for Dr. Greenway to give me this privilege. Uh, Debbie and I are uh, thrilled to be back uh, under the dome at home here. Uh, we uh, first moved to Fort Worth in 1995 in order to attend classes at Southwestern Seminary under then-president Dr. Ken Hemphill. And so when Dr. Greenway invited us to return uh, to serve here alongside the faculty that we have, such a great faculty, Texas Baptist College and Southwestern Seminary, we were delighted uh, to be chosen to do that and to serve in the capacity uh, under the Hemphill Center named after the seventh president. Uh, I would uh, also like to, to mention, I think it would be uh, rude if I didn't, but he may think it's rude for me to point out, I do have a nephew that attends Texas Baptist College, Tyler Saunders, so delighted to see him back there today and all of his TBC colleagues around him. So uh, just to make that familial connection so you all know who his uncle is here on campus. All right. So uh, I am uh, thrilled to, uh, to be leading out in the Center for Church Revitalization. If you're not familiar with the Hemphill Center, it's one of our newest centers here on campus, and it, it actually accomplishes two purposes. We have a, the academic side as a part of the, the Terry School, where we offer a Doctor of Ministry and Doctor of Educational Ministry, along with a certificate in consulting for church revitalization. Uh, and we're working on launching concentrations at the master's level in church revitalization as well. But then we also have a, another side of the center, uh, which I believe is unique to any seminary uh, in the world that I know of. I mean, I've researched and tried to find others, but we have a consulting side. And that's the real work that I do here through the Hemphill Center, is traveling around and working with churches that are in need of revitalization. I'll mention that a little bit as a part of the message this morning as I go through this. But Dr. Greenway has a, a special passion and vision that this seminary would be more than just an academic training center, but we would also be a resource for the local church to address the issues that are, that are relevant in culture, the issues that we're dealing with in the local church so that pastors and staff all across this world will know that they could turn to Southwestern Seminary to receive the, the work, the support that they need and to be more effective so that they not only leave here as graduates to go out into this world, but they know they can return here for continuing education to be supported by this seminary. So I'm thankful for the work that we're able to do through the center. Dr. McKellar, I thought I'd do something a little different this morning. I'm gonna begin with a story. The story's gonna be a little bit long, so as you're taking your notes and rating me on my preaching, just know I'm giving you an advance warning that I've got a story to begin with that's a little bit longer than we would normally do. So this is taken from George Hunter III's book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, along with some additional research that Debbie and I have put into this, but uh, it relates to the message that we will have today, so I wanted to give us this story. In the late 4th, early 5th century AD, Patrick was growing up in what is referred to as Britain. This is Northeast England. His people were the Britons, one of the, the Celtic peoples that populated the British Isles. Patrick was aristocratic family and background. He had really gone Roman during the Roman occupation of England. Patrick was really more Roman than he was Celtic. His first language would have been Latin, though he did understand some of the Welsh spoken by the lower classes. His family would have been considered Christian. His grandfather was a priest. Patrick had acquired some of the Christian teaching and an undoubtedly new catechism, but really was only a nominal Christian as a, as a young man. In fact, it was uh, stated that he ridiculed the clergy, and in the company of other ungoverned youth, he lived toward the wild side in life. 
When Patrick was 16, a, a band of Celtic pirates from Ireland invaded the region, kidnapped him and another uh, number of other young men, forced them onto a ship, sailed to Ireland, and sold them into slavery. It's a part of our own side little research. Dr. Wilder, we uh, did the DNA uh, testing 23andMe several years ago, and through that research found out that uh, uh, part of my lineage traces back uh, into Ireland uh, to a gentleman by the name of Nile of the Nine Hostages. Well, apparently he was king of Terra in Northern Ireland in the late fourth century, and it's believed that he was the one that actually kidnapped Patrick and sold him into slavery. So I've got that in my family history, apparently, something to be proud of. Not really. All right, so back to the, back to the story. Patrick gets sold off to a, a, a tribal druid uh, chief by the name of Miliak Moku Bowen, who put Patrick to work herding cattle out on the countryside. During his years of enslavement, Patrick experienced three profound changes in his life. First, the periods when Patrick was isolated in the wilderness herding cattle, it connected him with uh, what we call natural revelation, the natural revelation of God. He sensed with the winds, the seasons, the creatures, the nights under the stars, the very presence of God. And he identified this presence with the triune God he had learned about in catechism. And this is what Patrick had to say. After I'd arrived in Ireland, I found myself pasturing flocks daily. And I prayed a number of times each day. More and more, the love and fear of God came to me and faith grew and my spirit was exercised until I was praying up to a hundred times every day and in the night nearly as often. How many of us can say that today? Patrick became a devout Christian and the change was obvious to his captors. The second change, Patrick, uh, in another way, was during the periods he spent with his captors uh, in the settlement, he began to understand the Irish Celtic people, their language, their culture, with the kind of intuitive profundity that is possible only as in Patrick's case when you live from the underside of a culture. And then the third uh, change in his life, Patrick came to love his captors, to identify with them, and hope for their reconciliation to God that one day he would feel they were his people. One night after about six years, he has a dream uh, in the night, a voice to him calling out that says, you are going home, look, your ship is ready. The voice directed him to flee for his freedom the next morning, so he awakened before daybreak and walked down to the seacoast and saw the ship from his dream. He negotiated his way on board. He returned to England. He trained for the priesthood. He immersed himself uh, in his mind and scriptures, grounded him in the basic orthodox theology and then he served for years as a faithful parish priest. One night when he was about 48 years old, he has another dream. An angel approached him with letters and he imagined that as he opened those letters in that moment that he heard the voice of those very people who had held him in slavery in his past. And they cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. When Patrick awakened the next morning, he interpreted this dream as his Macedonian call to take Christianity's gospel to the Celtic people of Ireland. He opposed to his, uh, proposed this to his ecclesiastical superiors that he be sent on this mission. The bishops of the British church with the strong encouragement of Pope Celestine affirmed his calling. Patrick was ordained as a bishop and appointed to Ireland as history's first missionary bishop. And he arrived with a moderate entourage of priests, seminarians, and others around A.D. 432. It's this Macedonian call that we want to focus our attention on today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. And this is what our text has for us this morning. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You recall here, Paul and Silas are on their second missionary journey. They arrive in Lystra. They come across Timothy, converted during Paul and Barnabas' journey there. And Lystra is where Paul's first journey, he was stoned and he was left for dead. So we see some great boldness in Paul's life as he goes back somewhere that tried to kill him. This would be very similar to what Patrick had experienced. He had escaped slavery from Ireland, and by returning to Ireland, they very well could kill him or at least enslave him again, but he has great boldness to go back. Nevertheless, in our story, Paul and his team pick up Timothy, and Luke tells us that Timothy is well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wants Timothy to go on this journey with he and Silas. So we're in verse 6. The team has finished visiting the churches from the first journey and are heading north to Asia. And along that journey, Paul is stopped by the Spirit. Their journey takes a detour. And in verse 7, Paul intends to go to Bithynia, but again, stopped by Jesus. They change directions again. And this time, Paul sees a vision in the night, this vision of the Macedonian. In a very uh, uh, poignant point of the text, if you see at the end, it says that, that the inclusion of the word we, since Luke is the author here, it says we went into Macedonia. So we know that the team is four going off into Macedonia to take the gospel. The remainder of 16 deals with the ministry in Philippi. The importance for our text is gonna focus on three points this morning. First, to magnify the Holy Spirit. Next, to be sensitive to God's leading in our life and faithful. Uh, finally, to be faithful to follow when and where he leads. I wanna start by pointing out the, the, that we should notice how the triune God is active in this text. In verse six, it is the Holy Spirit who prevents them from speaking in Asia. In verse seven, it is Jesus who prevents them from entering Bithynia. And in verse 10, it is God who calls them to preach in Macedonia. The Trinity was active in the missional work of this team just as the Trinity is active in our missional work today. We are called of God to reach our community, commissioned by Christ to spread the good news and empowered by the Spirit to accomplish the work that is set before us. As we look into our text and look at our three points today, we begin by magnifying the Holy Spirit. Some people like to shy away from a discussion on the Holy Spirit. They're afraid of being called charismatic for spending too much time of focusing on this. But we all know a right perspective of the Holy Spirit is an acknowledgement of the third person of the triune God. He's not merely a vague, impersonal, ambiguous force. He's alive. The Holy Spirit is God. As believers, the Holy Spirit is more than God with us. He is God in us. We are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit at the point of salvation. This means that our relationship is authenticated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, occurs, this word only occurs twice in the Old Testament, Psalm 51, 11, and Isaiah 63, 10, and 11. But the references to his work are plentiful. From the point of creation in Genesis 1, 2, and moving forward from there, we see how the Holy Spirit is active and involved in God's work. In this post-resurrection age, we understand that, that the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus to indwell believers, give us the inner assurance that we are heirs of the kingdom of God. The book of Acts begins with the, the promise of the Spirit, the, the descent at Pentecost in chapters 1 and 2. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We are the body of Christ. We magnify the Spirit when we live a life on mission. The first question we should ask ourselves today is, are we living our life 
on mission. Our next step, our, our next point is to focus on the, being sensitive to God's leading. For the church, it's the, the understanding that the church must come back to an understanding of what God would have her to do. Since Christ established the church, his calling for her has been to, to be faithful to the Great Commission. This means that a local congregation must have a plan for how she intends to disciple and engage the community for the cause of Christ. Prior to the pandemic, prior to COVID hitting, 80% of Southern Baptist churches were in a state of plateau or decline. Through the COVID pandemic, it's all it has done is, is heightened the awareness, heightened the need that we need to, to, to have more focus on gospel engagement in the community. Churches have suffered through the pandemic, trying to figure out how can we do discipleship? How can we do evangelism with all of this challenge for social distancing and all of the issues that are taking place centered around the pandemic? There is a certain reality that the church should be the, 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 uh, the, the poster child on how we're engaging in the pandemic. We should be the ones stepping back and saying, here's how we can engage our community. We need to, to make sure that we're honoring the at-risk people with the health conditions that they have and that we're sensitive to the needs that they have, but we're not going to allow it to limit us from gospel engagement in our community. This is the challenge that we have before us in the church today. We must continue to focus on a great commission strategy even in the midst of a pandemic that continues to move forward, that it continues to advance the gospel of the local church. The pandemic is not going away this spring or this summer. This is something we have to learn to live with. That means as students of the gospel, you need to be studying now to figuring out how in the midst of future pandemics can we continue to advance the gospel message of Jesus so that the church will continue to not survive in the midst of a pandemic, but to thrive in the midst of a pandemic. God did not intend for the bride of Christ to just get by. God intended for the bride of Christ to be the lighthouse of hope to a lost and dying world. As we continued looking through a great commission strategy and how we can be sensitive to God's leading, it's really a very simplistic way that we can, we can focus on the personal spiritual practices that were taught throughout Scripture. We must spend time alone with God, Psalm 46.10, praying and seeking God's direction, reading and studying God's Word. We're not, we're not talking about just reading the Bible to, to say we read through the Bible this past year. It's talking about the effective spiritual transformation of reading the Bible as in Romans 12.2, the ability to read God's Word and know that you're being transformed by it. This doesn't happen overnight, happen over a course of a week or even a couple of months. It's, it is that continual, effective commitment to the process of being faithful to study and read God's word so that this transformation, transformation occurs in our life. God will be faithful to reveal his specific plan, his specific purpose for us as we engage in his word, as we engage in the spiritual practices of spending time with him. We also need to spend time with the people of God. The book of Hebrews tells us to not neglect the gathering of the saints, but to spend time in community. Acts 2, at the end of the chapter, we know it, it gives us the demonstration of this as the early church modeled what it meant to genuinely experience biblical community, to live a life in such a missional way that the early church was devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Today, this is our worship service, our Sunday school, our small group times of study. 
They devoted themselves to prayer, not just for, for praying over a meal, but just as Patrick was praying a hundred plus times a day and oftentimes as much during the night, it is that continual effective spirit of prayer that you're living your life in. It is the fellowship within the community of faith, living life in a biblical community. And the result of this, as we know in Acts 2, is God added to their numbers daily. It's not God adding to the numbers on Sunday. Pastors, we've got to move beyond the understanding. Sunday morning is not where people receive Christ. It is that Monday through Saturday as the church is on mission, living out in the community, reaching people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We bring them Sunday to celebrate the decision that they made the previous week. But we need to be on mission in the community, people being saved daily. Aside from the church, there's the personal element that goes with this. Those of us that are called to serve the church, being sensitive to the Spirit's leading is important in our respective call. Are you sensitive to what God is calling you to do? Our text tells us in verses six through nine that the missionary team was moving about the countryside. They were trying to go from place to place that was all good things. They had a desire to take the gospel into different communities, which we can all agree is a good thing. But the issue for what was taking place here is an issue of timing. God's timing was not set for these other countries to hear the gospel. God's timing was set for Macedonia to receive the gospel. In our illustration at the beginning, Patrick was doing good things. He had escaped slavery. He had committed his life to the priesthood. He had trained for that. And he was serving God faithfully, all good things. But God had another plan. God's timing was for the gospel to go to Ireland. And Patrick was the messenger to take the gospel to Ireland. Think about it for a moment. God calls Patrick back to a people who had kidnapped him, who had enslaved him. God gives him a vision of these people, having a foreknowledge that he was a servant of God, crying out to him for salvation, that he could show them the work and the way of Jesus Christ. They'd seen a change in him when he was there, if you remember the story. They knew that he was different because of his fellowship with Christ. And in this vision, they wanted and desired that difference in their very lives. How hard would this be? Let's focus briefly on the issue of calling with Patrick, with Paul, and with you. What is your calling? See, through the years, I've, I've worked with people who express a general calling in the ministry. The, the conversation usually goes something like this. I can do whatever it is God wants me to do right now. If today he wants me to go preach, I can go preach. If he wants me to go lead the youth, I can go lead the youth. There's a general calling that these individuals have. But I've also worked with people that understands that at times God calls people to specific ministry for specific purpose at specific times in history, a very specific calling. I think about my own calling. At the age of 15, when God called me into ministry, I had no idea really what that meant. I had no one to disciple me and teach me in my calling. I was left to figure it out on my own. When I came to seminary in 1995, I had this idea that, that my calling was to be a seminary professor. I was on track for PhD work. But then in the midst of that, there was an interruption. As I was pre-doctoral, I went on staff at Travis Avenue Baptist Church. And what I realized is, I'm not the type of person that can serve full-time on staff at a church and do all that needs to be done there, as well as focus on my educational pursuits. And so I sidelined my doctoral work 
to focus on the work of the church at that particular time. Little did I know, Dr. Wilder, that in August of 21, I would be coming back to Southwestern Seminary where God would put me where what that original calling was, but just wasn't the timing for me to be there. I needed to go out and get some additional training. The dean of the, the School of Education at the time's name was Daryl Eldridge. Daryl was one of my mentors, along with a gentleman that was on staff at Travis Avenue that Dr. Shirley knows real well, Dillard Wilbanks. The two of them said, you need to go out and get about 10 years of experience on staff at a church in the educational ministries to do what you do. And that's exactly what I did. And then God moved me to work at the state convention work with the Southern Baptist of Texas for over 12 years as I traveled around the nation consulting with churches, working in this field of church revitalization for over 20 years, helping churches figure out that they're what to do in a state of decline, how to turn things around. My calling never changed. My calling was to equip people for the local church. I thought that was gonna be through a teaching ministry at the seminary, but it ended up to be through a consulting ministry that then landed me back at the seminary in order to, to fulfill the calling God had on my life. As Debbie and I have traveled around and we meet different people and discuss the calling they have on their life, we go to Montana and we're able to, to meet with pastors, Dr. Biles, who, who say, the church can't afford to pay me, but I know God has called me to pastor this church. And so they go get jobs. They, they send out letters for missionary support so that they can stay and pastor the church where God has planted them. It always makes me kind of think about, are we preparing ourselves when we're here for the calling God has on our lives? Now I'm gonna do an experiment and this might fail. As Dr. McKellar would say, you should probably not do this in your churches, right? But we're gonna try it anyway. All right. If you believe you are called to preach, if you're a student here and you believe you are called to preach, I want you to stand up right now. Don't be shy, stand up. I need some, I need some audience participation so we can do something here, all right? Now, our statistics aren't gonna average out like they do in the Southern Baptist Convention. We'll, we'll talk about the numbers in just a minute. All right, so I want this gentleman, you sit down. He's going to represent the 1%. The 1% of Southern Baptist churches of our 47,000 churches that run over 1,000. There's only one guy in the room that gets to serve at that church. You two right there, why don't y'all go ahead and sit down. All right. They represent the churches that run 500 to 1,000. They're gonna be in full-time positions. They're gonna have a staff of four or five guys working with them. Why don't you, two, you three sit down? They represent churches of over 250. What that means is they've got a couple of staff members to help them do some things, but they're gonna be full-time. It's gonna be okay. You three sit down in this section right here. They represent 250 to 500. Full-time, maybe have a part-time youth guy, Dr. Ross, maybe have a part-time worship leader, but that's what they've got. They're gonna have to do a lot of work. The rest of you, bivocational pastors, you might find a church that has a parsonage you can live in that pays you enough salary you might could consider it full-time. But the reality is, 
You, you may all sit down. The reality is over 66% of pastors are bivocational. As you're sitting here training, preparing for the ministry, are you preparing yourself for what God may be calling you to do? Most students who go through Southwestern Seminary or any of the seminaries, they're graduating and thinking, I'm going out to be full-time somewhere. I will be that 1%, right, Dr. McKellar? I'm gonna be the guy that has the full-time staff, plenty of support. But the reality is, that's not where we are. The majority of us are in bivocational, co-vocational roles. We have to figure out how is it we're going to raise the support? How are we going to make a living to provide for the family while we're preaching the gospel? Are you asking yourself very seriously about your calling into ministry? Do I think I'm called? Do I have a limited idea of ministry? Or do I know for certain that God is calling me to a people, to a culture, to a geography, to a specific place to serve. Now, I was focusing on pastors, I know that, but the same is true for everyone else. When you think about the, the number of churches, less than 14% of Southern Baptist churches can afford full-time staff. Women's minister, men's minister, preschool children's minister, student minister, minister of education, administration, executive pastor, whatever the title is. Less than 14% of churches can afford that, which means the majority of the work that we're doing as we support the local church is to serve in a co-vocational, bivocational role if you're in some type of support ministries. Let's go back to our story for a moment. Paul and Patrick, they have different stories here. Paul was being sent to a people that needed Christ. So was Patrick. The difference was Paul was going somewhere he had never been. Patrick was going somewhere where he had been. Paul didn't really know what to expect from the culture. Patrick knew exactly what to expect from the culture. The comparative could be made for each of us today. Some of you are going to be called to places that you have never been. God gave you a burden, gave you a heart to, to engage in ministry. You're called on mission to go out and serve somewhere that you have never been. You are preparing, you are studying to, to be missional. You're gonna end up going through the International Mission Board where they're gonna send you to language school, give you an opportunity to learn a little bit about the culture and context of where you're headed. But when you land with boots on the ground, it's going to be all new to you. And you're going to have to figure out how to engage in gospel service in this community context. Others of you are going to be called to, to go back. Go back to where you've been. No, maybe it may, may not be the same town, but it's going to be a town that looks just like the town you grew up in. You're going to be called to, to go into this community. You're going to have to figure out how to serve bivocationally, co-vocationally in order to, to meet the needs of the family while you're taking the gospel to this community. There's another part of this that we need to consider in our preparation and our calling as well. Some of you are gonna be called to go out into to the pioneer states, into the rural areas, outside the Bible Belt. Many of you that are from the South, you're perfectly comfortable with going back somewhere in the South to serve. But God may be leading you to go somewhere outside the South to a pioneer area. There, there are 30 plus million people in rural America who need Jesus. They need pastors and ministers equipping themselves to go and take the gospel, which means we have to be preparing ourselves for the possibility that we may not get a full-time 
job in ministry? Do you have a burden that anybody that needs Jesus should be reached? And is God giving you a burden to be the minister of reconciliation to take the gospel to that community? Have you come to a point where you're being faithful to God's leading in your life? Are you planning to wait until you graduate? Are you trying to be equipped now? One of the challenges I would put before you, if you're not serving in a local church now, but God has called you to serve, why not serve now? We have churches all across this state that need people to serve. If you're trying to figure that out, come and talk to me after the service. I've got two or three churches right now in the greater DFW area. And when I say greater, I mean greater. You have to go out 100, 120 miles to get there. But the greater DFW area that need pastors today. And I can tell you, you don't have a clue what to do. You're here to be trained so that you can learn what to do. But the benefit is because you are here, you can get the training you need to go serve at the churches even now. Dr. McKellar, Dr. Biles, all of the professors here are here to walk with you as you're trying to figure out how to do ministry. We will provide the coaching and mentoring you need through the Center for Church Revitalization to go into these churches and be effective at doing what God has called you to do. Don't wait until you graduate in order to serve the church. You should be serving in some capacity now, what is God calling you to do at this particular time in history? What is God uniquely calling you to do? Are you willing to do it for the gospel this week? Are you ready to be faithful to follow? If you're here today and maybe you're exploring your calling, you, you need to be discipled. Just when I was 15, called in the ministry, didn't know what to do. Unfortunately, it was until I got to seminary that someone was able to disciple me and help me figure it out, but that might be the case that you have as well. Come and see me afterwards. I would love to talk to you, get you connected with some mentors to help you discern exactly what God is calling you to do. Any of our professors would be more than willing to do that. As we conclude, let me just mention this. You know, the, the late Dr. Robert Naylor would often say, the sun never sets on Southwesterners. Whether you're called to serve as a senior pastor, a missionary, a worship leader through the educational ministries of the church, as a counselor, whatever you're calling, we are here to walk with you on your journey, equip you for that calling, send you out all over the world as a great network of Southwesterners committed at all costs to the task of making Christ known to the nations. Make this week count for the gospel. Thank you.